Okay, church family, you should know by now what book we're turning to. We are in Leviticus chapter 26 this morning. We are actually going to read verses 40 through 43 in a sermon entitled True Repentance. True Repentance. Uh, Let's read the precious, inerrant, infallible word of God together. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they, have, uh, they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember." I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, search us. Know our hearts. Try us, know our thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting. We pray this in the precious name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm sure many of you are aware by now in our Sprout ministry, uh, that is our, our kids' ministry that we have here at First Baptist Church of Great Gables, we've been catechizing them using the Catechism for Boys and Girls um, something that our kids had been using and uh, something that's very, uh, very helpful. If you're not, even as an adult, it's an, important that you can read catechisms to help you prepare, know for doctrinal answers. But in the catechism we're studying in Sprout Ministry, um, the following questions are asked. And, and two of them are out of order, but uh, for sermon's sake, we put them. The, one of the questions is, who will be saved? And the answer that we want to teach our kids to memorize is, all of those who repent of sin... And believe in Christ. Then it follows, what does it mean to believe? To trust in Christ alone for salvation. And then, what does it mean to repent? To hate and forsake sin because it is displeasing to God. I think that because needs to be emphasized. And hopefully we'll see why we need to repent of sin... Because it's displeasing to God, as we consider the passage this morning, and what it has to teach us specifically about repentance. The big idea of our passage in verses 40 through 43, obviously understood within the larger context of chapter 26 itself, is simply this. When Israel would repent, God would forgive. When Israel would repent, God would forgive. Forgive. That's actually quite simple. And this is obviously, of course, as we said, within the context of those covenant blessings and covenant curses that were laid out in chapter 26 we considered last week. And what I want to look at specifically this morning within this passage is what we can learn about the nature of repentance itself. 
I'm going to give you guys a heads up. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9 and Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning as well as even as full as your outline looks in your bulletin. Uh, that's not even all of it. There will probably be some things on the screen that's not in your outline. So just go ahead and like scratch out one of those things that doesn't look as important to you in the bulletin and make that a little area you can just write over uh, to add some additional notes there. But uh, this right here. Uh, The reason why we're going to Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 9 is because this right here, what we're reading today, is recorded as a historical event in Nehemiah 9 and Daniel 9. Uh, This is not just a law that's given to Israel. They're not just told, this is what shall happen. But we read in the course of redemptive history in the narrative that they read this, they understood this, and they responded appropriately. That's recorded, contained in Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 9. All right, let's start. We're going to start by looking at the essence of repentance. That's the first thing we're going to look at this morning. The essence of repentance. The essence of repentance. And ultimately, what we see about repentance in this passage is that it requires a recognition of truth. Repentance requires a recognition of truth. I'm going to state this broadly first, as I just did, and then we're going to be a little bit more specific here in the subpoint. So we have the essence of repentance requires a recognition of truth. And then I want us to look really first and foremost about the truth about sin. The truth about sin. Verse 40 in our text says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their Fathers, See, repentance requires a recognition of iniquity, sin, and transgressions. That, that may seem something like that's so simple to you, that's not even worth saying. But in order to confess iniquity, you have to recognize iniquity as iniquity. In, in fact, iniquity or sin, in very simple terms, is wrongdoing. Ultimately, it's the act of doing what God forbids or not doing what God commands. And for those of us who are really familiar with the language of the Bible, that, again, may seem rudimentary. But I want to offer you, this is the first thing that's not in your notes, by the way. I want to offer you three reasons why we cannot just assume that everybody understands repentance. Three reasons why we can't assume everyone understands repentance. First, broadly speaking, we live in a culture where terms like iniquity, sin, and wickedness have lost all meaning. That's the first reason we can't just assume everyone understands repentance. It's because we live in a culture where these terms, terms like iniquity, sin, and wickedness, they have no meaning anymore. In our day, iniquity is an antiquated term that is politically incorrect and all but worthless. We have outright, as a society, rejected the concept of iniquity as it's used in the Bible and replaced it with terms and concepts such as mental disorders or chemical imbalances, uneducated, undeveloped family systems. Have you ever noticed no one sins anymore? They just make poor choices. No one's wicked anymore. They're just products of their family system. No one deserves punishment. They just need rehabilitation. No one's evil. They're just off their meds. 
Listen, I'm, I'm not simply talking about out there either, but, but in the church, you and I, we have actually begun to adopt these same concepts to describe what used to be described as sin. We, we may still use the terms iniquity and sin, but these terms really no longer are understood or appreciated, and that's why we have to camp out here a little bit. The second reason I think we can't just assume everyone understands repentance is because we often confuse iniquity with consequences. This is something you and I do all the time. We confuse iniquity or our sin with consequences. Maybe not consciously, but we do. We confuse iniquity with the consequences of iniquity. When we think about hating sin, it's really just the consequences that we hate and would like to avoid. For example, uh, what happens when you run a stop sign and nobody sees it? I I know we're talking about man's law, not God's, but just roll with the illustration here, okay? If you're like me, most likely you notice that you ran a stop sign and you say, oh, that was dumb, and you just don't think about it much after that. Now, what happens if you run a stop sign and get pulled over? Now you're ticked off. How could I be so stupid? I can't believe I did that. It was clearly there. I wasn't paying attention. Now you're mad. But are you really mad that you broke the law? No. You're mad that you got caught. See, we often do this. We confuse iniquity for its consequences. And that brings me to the final reason why we can't assume That everyone understands repentance. And that is because if we don't truly understand sin, then we can't truly repent. That's why we need to hammer this home over and over again. If we don't truly understand sin, we can't truly repent. Hear me now. There is no such thing as repentance without a right understanding of sin and iniquity. Do we understand that? At the heart of repentance is a recognition of the truth about sin. And so so really, as we talk about uh, requiring and recognizing uh, the truth is a core essential part of repentance, that the next two truths are foundational truths that are really necessary for the first, necessary for that proper understanding of sin. The second one we have here is the truth about God. Our sin is ultimately against Him. We have the truth about sin, but we have the truth about God. Our sin ultimately is against Him. And I would say against Him primarily, chiefly, over anyone else. Look at verse 40 again with me of our text. It says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness, in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they have also walked contrary to me, See, part of the reason we don't understand iniquity is because we too often fail to see that it is deeply, profoundly, and ultimately personal. It is against God. Iniquity is not the transgression of some abstract law or absolute moral code. Iniquity is unfaithfulness to your kind, loving creator. Iniquity is treason against your benevolent king. Church, hear me. Sin is personal. 
Sin is personal. Always, in every single case, it is personal. David actually shows us this and that he understood this when he writes Psalm 51, 4, that great repentance psalm where he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Michael Horton is correct when he writes this, Repentance is not only remorse for having wronged our neighbor, neighbor, but it is a recognition that God is the most offended part. God is always the most offended party when we deal with sin. Christian, if you don't understand sin in these particular terms, then you've never really understood the gravity of sin at all. It is not simply the breaking of a rule. It is the breaking of a covenant of the most important, significant relationship you have with the most faithful, loving covenant partner you will ever know. Daniel 9. Let's go there and start looking as I, I warned you and now it's, it's time. Let's see how they understood this. Listen, in regards to this, sin is not only personal, it's absolutely that. But sin is also a personal affront to a loving, kind, and gracious God. Sin is a personal affront to a loving, kind, and gracious God. And look, this is what Israel gets as they, as they come together to offer up this prayer of repentance in Nehemiah 9. It's this act of worship before God. They come and they confess their sins and they begin by rehearsing the kindness of God in absolute concrete terms. Starting in verse 6 of Nehemiah 9, here is what they say. They say, you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. The earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You see how they understood who God is? That there is but one, and He created all things, He sustains all things, He preserves them all. Verse 7, You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. This one God who created and preserves all things, He's not one that stands far off, aloof from what He has created, but instead has condescended to be in an intimate relationship with His creation. He actually calls out individuals out of all individuals that He might purpose to save all nations. He calls them out in order to secure His redemptive plan. That's the God who we've sinned against. Just follow along with me a little bit now. Verse 9, this God not only called out and covenanted with Abraham, promising that all nations would be blessed through his seed. Not only did this one God do that, but he hears the cries of his people in Egypt. He intercedes on their behalf. He redeems them out of Egypt with his outstretched arm and his mighty acts of judgment. He brings them to himself at Mount Sinai and enters into a covenant relationship with them. They rehearsed that in this prayer in Nehemiah 9 as well. Then they rehearsed the wilderness wanderings, how God provided them throughout, uh, provided for them throughout that wilderness wanderings. They rehearsed God's goodness and kindness, the righteous rules and true laws, the good statutes and commandments given to them, that He made known to them His holy Sabbath. That's in verse 14, if you've turned there and are following along. He gave them bread from heaven in verse 15 of Nehemiah 9. He gave them water to drink out of the rock for their thirst. 
Listen, the point of this is, this is a good, kind, benevolent, merciful God. And yet the people respond, as Nehemiah 9 verse 16 tells us, presumptuously and have stiffened their neck. See, sin is not just breaking a rule. It's it's not just, you know, look, everybody knows it's wrong to murder. You shouldn't murder and you've murdered. You broke a rule. That completely misses the point of what iniquity is. Everyone knows there is one God who created life. And when you take that life, you reject his sovereign right over it. You ignore the fact that you have just snuffed out the life of one born in the likeness and image of God. That is extremely personal. God is good, loving, kind, compassionate, and full of mercy. And sin ultimately is an attack against this God. And real repentance requires that we understand iniquity in those terms, that it is against God. Finally, the third truth we must understand, if we understand repentance requires a recognition of truth, then we need to know the truth about our sin, our iniquity, and the truth about God, that it's, our sin is ultimately against Him, that finally we would understand this other foundational truth that must be understood, and it is the truth about sin. I'm sorry, the truth about us. Excuse me. The truth about us, iniquity is our responsibility. The truth about us, mankind, our sin is ultimately our responsibility. It's against God and it's our responsibility. Again, this may seem so simple that it's, it's, not, it's not worth stating, yet I think we often fail to fully grasp the truth of this. And, and I want to say two things out of the gate of why I think that is. Um, one is, I think, our, uh, our you're okay, I'm okay society has made it really hard for us to believe that sin is our fault. Our you're okay, I'm okay society, this has made it really hard for us to truly believe that sin is actually our fault. Sure, yeah, look, I, when I sin, yeah, I should stop it. We would agree with that within the church, certainly, even not within the culture, but deep down, deep down, I know, it, it's really my parents' fault. Right? If they would have just loved me better. I mean, it's really my brain's fault. It just doesn't work right. Chemistry's off. And let's be honest, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? That's the first thing that, that makes that really hard for us to believe. Second, our theology has made it really hard to believe that sin is our fault. Let's be honest, this is, this is true. Our theology has made it really hard for us to believe that sin is our fault. At times, our theology actually works against this. And here's why. We know that God is sovereign and no one can please God without the Holy Spirit. That, that is true. Scripture states that clearly. We believe that. Amen. Hallelujah. So unconsciously, we begin to expect sin and excuse sin as part of the perfect sovereign plan of God. Now, we would never say that out loud. We really wouldn't. Yet our response to our iniquity proves deep down that we believe that. And I mean, honestly, shame on us. Listen, God does not sin, nor does he tempt any man to sin. People sin. And, and you want to know the reason why people sin? I'll give it to you. It is, it is a great, deal, deep theological truth that is going to blow your mind. People sin because we want to. 
That's what the Bible teaches. We sin because we want to. We desire it. Consider Nehemiah again. They understood this. Verse 16 of Nehemiah 9. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. There is no hint in Nehemiah 9 of, well, Lord, you, you didn't circumcise our hearts, so of course we were going to sin against you. No, the language is they refused to obey. They were given the commands, they were called to walk in obedience, and refused to do so. Why? Because they wanted to. It's the same reason we do. Daniel actually comes to the exact same conclusion. I'm going to put this little bookmark right here in Leviticus 6. And I'm going to turn to to the book of Daniel. And I ask you to join me if you'd like. Daniel chapter 9. He comes to the same conclusion in chapter 5. Hold on, let me find Daniel. I know where it's at. I think. Just kidding. Daniel chapter 9. So this, this is, again, it's really a similar thing. Again, this is being worked out in history. And so Daniel actually starts with this great confession of who God is, the greatness of God, who keeps his covenant, steadfast love with those who love him, who keep his commandments. He understands God rightly, as we've said. Therefore, he's convicted of his sin, and he responds with this full responsibility. Starting in verse, let's go to verse 5. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. And rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. To our God, our kings, and our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But to us, shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off, in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Listen, all of Israel, including, by the way, did you notice the we there? Including Daniel himself. The faithful prophet Daniel says, we have transgressed your law and have departed from it. See, Daniel identifies with Israel. He recognizes that he's actually a part of these people and they have willfully sinned against the Lord. Church, we have to understand that. Not just cognitively, but in our whole being, that iniquity is on us. It's our fault. It's our choice. We willfully do it each and every time it happens. And let me add to this. For those of us who are in Christ, this is what trips us up. See, see, we know that we were slaves to sin. And so we know, well, what choice did I have as a non-Christian? I was a slave to sin. But listen, you need to hear this. We were slaves not because we were captured out in our fields doing God's righteous work and doing His will. Just worshiping Him, obeying Him, and loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the devil came along, he just snatched us out of that field and brought us into the field of iniquity where we've toiled for the rest of our lives. That's not the case at all. We fled the field of righteousness. 
We fled right to the field of the enemy. We were more than willing to do his bidding. We were reaping what we sowed. We were earning our wages of death and destruction. And the only reason you are still not serving the evil one is because God captured you. He conquered your heart. He brought you into the kingdom of his son. And that's the God that we still sin against willfully. So we have to understand this. And and now that, that we have the raw material before us to understand iniquity rightly, we know God is good and we're not. To the Christian, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading to fall away from the living God. Repent. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When you sin, you are responsible for committing treason against your Savior and Lord. Don't minimize this and repent. To the non-Christian, which includes some of our children or youth in here, I ask you, please give me your ear. Despite God's kindness in placing you in a gospel-loving, Christ-centered, God-honoring family, some of you still willingly suppress the truth. Do not be deceived. There is no excuse in not trusting in Christ. There's no excuse for not repenting. It is as Paul writes. He says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? This is Romans chapter 2. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself Wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Friends, I beg you, repent and trust in Christ. Your willful refusal to follow Christ is disobedience against a kind, loving, and just God. It is iniquity, and iniquity brings judgment. But okay, we, we still haven't answered a really big question here, and that is what is repentance? Right? If you're moved by the words that were just spoken and you desire to repent, what is repentance exactly? Well, it seems like a reasonable question. And simply stated, I would just say repentance is the appropriate response to these truths. Repentance is the re- appropriate response to these truths. That's what repentance is. The internal response to the truth about iniquity. The truth that it is against a personal, loving, kind God, and we are fully responsible for it. So let's ask this. What does, therefore, that repentance look like? If that's what repentance is, what does it look like? Well, I would say at least three things, as we see in the Scripture. The first thing is repentance looks like brokenness. The truth that we have sinned against such a loving God should humble our souls. In fact, in verse 41 of Leviticus 26, it says... If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled. In Nehemiah chapter 9, what we've already read, starting in verse 1, it actually says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. This outward conduct of sackcloth and, and, and earth on their heads is a picture of actually what should be happening internally as we are broken over our sin. Israel recognized their wretchedness. 
the wretchedness of their sin and against their good and faithful covenant Lord, they acknowledged that they were responsible, that they'd willfully chose to disobey the Lord's command and the covenant. And, and Daniel actually demonstrates the exact same type of repentance. Daniel was broken over his sin. There was sorrow. You can almost hear as you read Daniel 9, the tears hitting the pages as you read through his prayer. He says explicitly in verse 7 and 8, which we read, he says, shame on our heads. That's difficult, right? Like, you don't do shame in today's culture. That's, that's bullying. Not that we actually have a category for what's wicked, but if we did, shame would go into the category. But Scripture says, Daniel says, shame on our face. Shame of face on us for our response to such a loving God. That's not wrong. It's right. Horton again writes this. He says, repentance is the revulsion of the whole soul toward its alliance with sin and death. That's brokenness. That's what repentance looks like. Brokenness over sin leads to the second response, which is the experience of spiritual poverty. Repentance looks like poverty. It looks like brokenness and it looks like poverty. The idea of of spiritual poverty here is, is you and I, we despair of ever living as autonomous creatures who can somehow merit anything good before the Lord. And instead, we recognize that we are constantly, in every way, dependent on God and always have been. And listen, we aren't dependent because we're sinful. We're dependent because we're creatures who were made to live dependently. We've always been dependent. How much more so in our sin and our brokenness? That poverty of spirit leads to the third response. It is to recognize our neediness. Neediness, excuse me. Repentance looks like brokenness. It looks like spiritual poverty. And it looks like neediness. Our flesh hates this. But you need to hear this. We are needy people. And listen, we're, we're not just needy at like a point in time when we recognize, yes, I've sinned against the Lord. I prayed my prayer. prayer. Yeah, I need you, Lord. But now that you've given me salvation, I'm going to take it from here. No, we're needy people. Every second of every day for the Lord's grace not to abandon him. Not to wander. We are dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Daniel 9.3, he understood this when he was broken over the sin of his people. He went to the Lord to plead on behalf of his people. It's worth mentioning, I think, at this point, this third point in our our outline here. And that is, repentance and faith are inseparable. We've said this before, but we need to be reminded of this. Repentance and faith are inseparable. Recognizing the truth of sin and the goodness of God involves both a repulsion towards sin and a trust that the Lord is able to save. Those two things, they go together. We turn away from sin as we recognize its heinousness before a loving God and our responsibility for it, but we turn towards God. Fully embracing and expecting him to save because he's able and he promises to do so. Faith and repentance. Likewise, we need to hear this in our current church culture. We cannot trust in Christ without growing in our hatred for sin. We can't. Don't be deceived. If you think you trust God and you have no growing hatred... For your sin, I would encourage you 
to do what Brother Brad already encourages to, and that is search your heart to know whether you're following him. That is the essence of repentance. I recognize that could be a sermon in and of itself, but we've got to finish by Christmas Eve. Uh, so, I got, it's just like I feel like a dad who's just got a Christmas present waiting for Amazon to bring it, right? And just, you know, got to get this done. And we got one more week, so just got to buckle down. Um, hopefully it stopped raining by the time we're done. What's the effect of repentance? The essence of repentance we looked at. Let's look at now the effect of repentance. This is important. Really, it's the fruit of repentance as we described it in Scripture. But I want to be clear here. I want you to hear this. This is not repentance. This now, the effect of repentance, is the fruit of repentance. Right? Repentance, again, is that inward acknowledgement of sin and the hatred for it. The fruit of repentance is a walking in the newness of life in Christ. So let's look at what that looks like in each of these. Confession is an effect of repentance. Confession is an effect of repentance. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40 it says, but if they confess their iniquity. Let's just think a little bit about confession for a second. It's why we make this a regular part of our service as our brothers lead us in this. Uh, uh, confession, hear this, has to be purposeful and specific. Confession is purposeful and specific. In fact, listen to David's experience as expressed in the Psalms, specifically Psalm 32 Verses 1 through 6. He says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned in the drought into the drought of summer. But David writes in verse 5, That's pretty bad, right? Verses 1 through 4 is pretty bad. But David writes, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. That is, I confessed my sin. In my iniquity I have not hidden, I said. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. He's exhorting the the congregation to confess their sin to the Lord. His own experience was that. He was nearly crushed under the weight of his own sin when he attempted to hide it. But when he brought it to light, the Lord forgave him. See, confession is purposeful and specific, but it's not only that. Confession is also private or public, I would say. But either way, always to the Lord. That's not in your points, but I would add that in there. Private or public, but, but either way, it's always to the Lord. We, we just, I don't have much time to go through that whole point, but I want you to consider both the example of, of Nehemiah and Daniel here. Nehemiah actually has a public demonstration of confession before the Lord. And in Daniel chapter 9, what we find is a private prayer of confession. It is both private or uh, public, and it's always to the Lord. Finally, confession is also regular and expectant. Confession is also regular and expectant. I mean, we, we might be tempted to ask, when should I repent? Right, we talk about the fact that we should do it often, but like, how often? And I would just ask this question as a response. Well, when should you believe? And you might say, I don't think I really have anything to repent of at the moment. And I would say, really? 
here's the idea, friends. We're called to a posture of repentance. Yes, there are times when we slip in a way that requires some specific prayer for obvious sins, but our posture is to be one of repentance. 1 John 1.9, we know this well. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or Proverbs 28.13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Regular, expectant prayer. The simple reality is we need to remember that confession is a means of grace, just as the same as prayer, scripture reading, fellowship with the saints, the sacraments, all of those things were given to us by the Lord that we might avail ourselves to the grace we have in Christ, and we ignore it at our own peril. We should be constantly confessing our sin. Because it's an effect of repentance. Not only is the fruit of repentance confession, but it's also reparation. Reparation is an effect of repentance. It's making amends is what we mean by that. It's restitution. We find that actually in both verses 41 and 43 of Leviticus 26. True repentance, repentance excuse me, it moves us to try and make wrongs right. And this often can be a test for us of how true our repentance is. If if your repentance brings to you a great relief that we have nothing to worry about, about attempting to reconcile a relationship that we've wreaked havoc in, then you have not really repented. If you're so glad that you can go to the Lord, confess those sins, and you don't actually have to deal with the sin that you have perpetuated against another individual, you can't go to the Lord and, and repent with true repentance. Repentance itself drives and compels you out of love and gratitude to make every attempt to make the wrong right. It's compelled by love, and this drives us crazy. Oh, how our souls wish it would just be so easy for us to just take it to the Lord and not have to attempt to make any wrongs right. But let's look at some examples. Just personal. If you want want to be more concrete and what does that look like? Well, okay. Restoring anything that's taken or fixing anything that's broken. You think of uh, Zacchaeus, right? The story of Zacchaeus who restored more than he had taken, accepting any consequences, whatever they may be. I mean, just a real logical way to think about this is a person, a person in prison who comes to the Lord. Just because they come to the Lord doesn't mean they no longer have a debt to society. It doesn't mean they should be released just because they've become a new creation in Christ. They have transgressed a government law and they have a debt to society. The reality is where consequences are removed and sometimes that happens, we're often tempted to just flat out not learn the lesson. If you have kids, you probably can experience that. 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 6 and 8, that's another example of this. We won't go there, but, but Rehoboam, under the king of Judah, or he was the king of Judah, but uh, the Israel under him, they were invaded by Egypt, and so they, they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord hears their cry, and, and He hears them repent, and He shows mercy upon them. Amen, hallelujah. And then He allows the attacks to continue. Only so far, but... 
Why? Because there are real consequences for their lack of obedience initially. There's a lesson to be learned. It's a reparation. is an effect. It's a fruit of repentance. And finally, I would say, obedience is the final effect or fruit of repentance. This is not actually something that's explicitly stated in our text, but, but it's implied everywhere. To understand sin in light of the goodness of God and to understand our responsibility for sin is to acknowledge with it a responsibility we have to obey the Lord. True repentance will always issue in obedience. In fact, this is exactly what we saw in the wider context of the book of Nehemiah where their prayer ends and they're covenanting together to walk in obedience. They begin to, to aim towards that goal. And so the effect of repentance is confession, it's reparations, and it's obedience. But what about, what about its end? Let's end with this. What about its goal? What is the end of repentance? That is, what, is it, what are we aiming to do as we repent? I would look at verse 42 of our text in Leviticus 26. It says, Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. I will remember the land. See, the, the language of the covenant here speaks about the relationship with the Lord, with His chosen people. It's a summary of what we've called the covenant formula. We've heard that several times. They will be my people, and I will be their God. In exile, they have experienced the breaking of the covenant, as we see next week. Not that the Lord forgets the covenant with His people, but there's the experience of judgment instead of the blessing of the presence of the Lord. And so, in remembering, there's a promise of restoration of that which is lost. And primarily, the, the pinnacle of blessing in the covenant relationship with the Lord and the people, God's people in God's place under God's rule. So, in other words, the end, the goal of repentance is simply this. It is forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the end of repentance. Forgiveness. Not forgetting, but forgiveness. Their sins are done away with. The removal of guilt, condemnation, fear, judgment. There's forgiveness, but there's also reconciliation. The relationship broken is now restored. Those estranged by unfaithfulness and treachery are reunited in faithfulness and loyalty. Two parties that were at enmity with one another are brought back into a loving relationship marked by plenty, peace, and presence. That is the end of repentance, the remembering of the covenant of the land. Remember, ancient Israel's experience of the forgiveness and reconciliation, that that repentance that they had, remember, it was meant to be partial. Israel did repent. We read about it in Nehemiah, interestingly enough. The the Lord had already brought the people back. They're actually repenting in Israel, in the land. Nehemiah prays in the people of Israel. He prays for a fuller restoration because they were still failing to walk in the ways according to the Lord. But the repentance was partial and short-lived, as the post-exilic prophets would attest. You see that in Scripture. The restoration is partial. Israel never reclaims its former glory. Israel is never fully restored, but the ever-faithful Lord of Israel promised that He would one day circumcise His people's hearts and that they would really repent. That's the promise. And then what does the New Testament open with? It opens with John the Baptist and Jesus calling people to do what? 
to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came so you, uh, to secure what no one else was able to, the goal of our repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Not just as a promise, by the way. But as a fulfillment to secure through his perfect life and his substitutionary sacrificial death. Jesus the Messiah secured an eternal covenant with God. A covenant that God would always remember. That could never again be broken by the sins of his people. And so listen, faith and repentance, you Christian, us uh, church, they are uniting us to Christ. Our repentance does not bring uh, God to remember the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It does not bring God to remember the land. Our repentance brings God to remember the eternal covenant wrought in Christ, established and ratified by His blood. So don't miss this. As our weak, partial, incomplete repentance unites us with Christ, powerful, complete, and certain salvation. So as Horton says, hear this. He says, it is not our tears, but Christ's blood that satisfies God's judgment and establishes peace with God. And so as the great hymn, one of my favorite hymns of all time, we sing it often, Rock of Ages says, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Repentance, like faith, is the ongoing means by which we are united to Jesus Christ. And so look, in conclusion, really simple. If you do not trust Christ and follow Him, repent. Recognize what your sin is before a loving, kind, and benevolent God. See the truth of your sin. Know that you willingly choose to reject Him, that you refuse to obey Him, even though He gives you life and every good gift. Repent. And if if you're a Christian, likewise, you must recognize that your sin is against a good God. Yes, your sins are forgiven, but your sin is still against a good and faithful God. It should cause repentance in your heart. It is grievous and heinous. Repent, church. And so so let's just just often pray that prayer we began and confessed with at the beginning. Psalm 139, the Psalm of David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. Would you stand as we close this morning with a word of prayer? Gracious Father, in in so many ways, we are tempted to believe that ascending to truth is what unites us to Christ. And we fail to recognize the impact of truth on the inner man. Father, would you please grant us greater repentance? Would you grant us a posture of repentance among your people? That we would be humbled. That we would not think of our poverty of spirit as something in the past, but would recognize our current impoverished state, even as we have received all blessings in Christ, knowing that we are prone to wander, knowing we are prone to rebel against you. Forgive us, Lord. You are so good. 
You are so kind. You have worked mightily among your people here. We have seen and heard of your blessings. We have experienced your salvation. We have every reason to offer you full obedience, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet, the truth is, we often love ourselves the most. Forgive us, Father. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Restore your spirit to us. Lord, we need you. Oh, how we need you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing this hymn of response together. Thank you, church. You may be seated. As we come to the time of our invitation to close our service, um, the call is clear for those who are in Christ. The application to this is simply repent. Are you, are you having constantly a posture of repentance the same way you would with faith? As you are continually trusting upon the Lord, are you continually posturing in recognition of the truth about your sin, about God, about man, and being your fault, and then confessing that to Him? seeking to make wrongs right, and then seeking and striving to obey Him. It's the evidence that you belong to Christ. There is no greater time in my walk that I am assured I belong to the Lord than when I am constantly in the posture of repentance. So maybe you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for a really long time, but but you're starting to just doubt your relationship with the Lord. I would say start here. (laughs) Start with a posture of recognizing your sinfulness against a good, kind, gracious God recognizing who He is, accepting that it is your fault, and then, listen, finding grace in who He is and what He's done, fully, finally forgiving you and reconciling you to Himself. If you're not a Christian this morning, the application is actually the exact same thing. (laughs) Repent. Recognize this as an opportunity of God's grace to hear your need to repent. You do not want to stand before the Lord with the works of your hands and say, is this enough to enter into your kingdom? The answer will be no. Because you've broken His law. And what you need is not simply to do enough good. You need someone to cover you in a perfect, obedient righteousness. And we believe that's exactly what Jesus has given you in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. That that He has accomplished for us what we need the most... And that is to be able to look into the eyes of our Savior in pure righteousness. He's giving you that. So you have not confessed your sins, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ then, you, then you have not had a relationship with Him. And today can be the day of salvation for you. It's, it's very simple. There's no prayer you need to repent. You simply call out and acknowledge what we just talked about. Confess that sin before the Lord. Recognize the truth about who you are and who God is. And then depend and trust in Him fully and finally to be your salvation. It's simple. You can do that right here in in your pew sitting there. Confess, God, I've sinned against you. I recognize that. Uh, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. I want to be yours and I want to follow you. And the Lord can use that in such a way to rot in your heart a new creature. A creature who will be with Him forever in heaven, fully and finally restored and reconciled. If that's you this morning, though, if if that's something you want to do, the Lord stirred your heart in such a way, we would encourage you, after our service, while while everybody's the hustle and bustle of of, of leaving and fellowshipping together, uh, I'll be right down front. Is it my turn to be down front? It's your turn to be down front. Justin will be right down front, but I'll be right in the back of our sanctuary. Grab either one of us and come to us and say, I want to know more about this. Or, or, you know what, I I decided I I wanted to give my life to the Lord. We'd we'd love to hear and direct you in those next step of common graces the Lord gives us and how you can, can grow in your faith and continue to be part of a fellowship of family that can 
can be there for you, encourage you. Whatever the Lord's doing in your life, we, we want to hear your response. We want to be a part of your response. It's our goal and our heart to shepherd you and love you in that way.